0: Welcome to Canyon Hills. I'm so delighted to be before you. My name is Pastor Carlos, and I'm excited. I'm excited for what the series is doing, for where we're going with the series. But I know that some of you are just coming on for the, maybe for the first time or listening online for the first time. So I want to give you a quick recap of what we've been over the last three weeks. This is our fourth week. Uh, and kind of just tell you just a little bit, that the book of Revelation was written by this guy named John. He's the apostle John that walked with Jesus. He was taken up to heaven, and, and basically he is told to write down the vision. And that happened in chapter 1, and that was basically the introduction to Revelation. It's so critical that you would go back and listen to that message, as that is the foundation for the book of Revelation. And then over in chapters 2 and 3, the second week, I I spoke to you about what the Bible calls the book of Revelation, the the structure or the outline of the things which are. We started with the things which you have seen. Now we're going to talk about the things that are and what he said to the seven churches. And we talked a little bit about that and then went into the rapture. The rapture is when God takes all his people right before the tribulation. Last week, we spoke all about heaven. How we need to get right so that we know where we're going, also that we can have this eternal hope of where we're going, so that we don't have to face all these things that we're facing here today. Without that hope, it's so important that we we have a, a an eternal perspective. Next week, where we're going with this, we're actually entering into the book of Revelation in chapter six, and that's where the tribulation starts. That it's a seven day, seven year period, which we'll talk about a little bit today, but we're leading up to that event, the tribulation, then we start that next week. You don't want to miss that. We start talking about the four horses. I call them the horses, but they're horses of the apocalypse. We start with four of them. And that's where the, the outline again says that the things that will take place later. So remember, there's things which you have seen. John writes that down. The things that, which are, he's talking to the churches, meaning he's talking to us today. And then the things that will take place later after the tribulation starts and thereafter. And today I get to talk to you more about this one thing called the Olivet Discourse. And we'll get into that in a second. It happens in in Matthew 24. Now, if you could get your hands on a newspaper called, I know we don't read newspapers that much anymore, but if you could get your hands on a newspaper called USA Tomorrow, I think all of you guys would get it, right, instead of USA Today, because we all want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. We all want to know what's going to happen next. You know, but no matter how hard we try to predict the future, even with all of our technology today, even with all of our intelligence, we tend to get things a little wrong because there's only one that can predict the future. In fact, for us, with our technology and with everything that we have going on, we know that stock predictions are wrong all the time, yet we try to predict those. We know that meteorologists, are they wrong sometimes? I don't know. I don't want to, you know say anything negative about, but we know that they're wrong sometimes. I mean, even gender reveals tend to be wrong sometimes, and we have a lot of technology that tells us the gender of a child. But one of the great attributes of God is that he knows the end from the beginning, and he has what is called omniscience, which means that he can tell what's going to happen before it ever happens. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, and I'm going to be talking about a few prophets today, and here's what I would want you to do. Uh, As I talk about Isaiah and as I talk about Daniel, we're not going to have time to go into every single prophet and what those books say. But I so encourage you that if you're intrigued by this, that you would go home and not just open up the Bible because some of these, the book of Daniel can be difficult to read, but that you would find what is called a commentary. A commentary is basically something that talks about and teaches you about that particular scripture. And as I say these scriptures, maybe you can go home Open up a commentary and read the scriptures that I'm about to tell you. And if some of you want those scriptures, then just email me and I'll send them to you. So the prophet Isaiah in chapter 46, this is what he said. The Lord said, don't forget the things that I have done throughout history. For he says, I am God. I alone, I am God. And there is no one else like me. Only one, you see. Only one can tell you what is going to happen before it ever happens. And the most exciting thing about this series to me, and I hope that to you and the future, the most exciting thing about our future is that Jesus is coming back. And some of us are like, please do it today. Cause I mean, uh, there's a, so much going on. And part of that hope is what, what I t- touched upon a few weeks ago when we talked about the rapture and the Bible says that it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. That's how fast it's going to happen. And we're not going to know um, anything before it. Now, As I get into the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, I want you to take a few things to note, a little foundation for you, if you will. And that is that the city of Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible 821 times. It is the most frequently talked about city in the scriptures. And the section, again, in Matthew 24, again, called the Olivet Discourse, is called that simply because Jesus, when he says these words that I'm about to read to you, was sitting at the Mount of Olives which is why it's called the Olivet Discourse. But you see, Israel is at the very center of God's plan for the future. And that's why today and for generations and centuries, it's been basically at the center of Satan's spiritual attacks. You know, there's this great old quote from the Midrash, which is basically some commentaries about the Torah, the Old Testament law. And this is what it says. The land of Israel is at the center of the world And Jerusalem is at the center of the land of Israel. And the temple is at the center of Jerusalem. It's kind of pointing us to this very center place. All of that to say that the temple and the Temple Mount is at the very epicenter of God's plan for the future. In fact, Jerusalem is the geographic center of the Bible, I mean, basically of the earth, biblically. So when you look at a map, you see that Jerusalem is right at the center. And, when, and in fact, when I went to school and when you went to school, what was at the center of your map? The United States. I grew up thinking that the U.S. was right at the center of the world, but not from God's perspective. And Ezekiel chapter 5, another one of those prophets, tells us that this is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. When you look at the map, you notice that Jerusalem is on a land bridge that connects Asia, Africa, and Europe. And when you read the Bible, when north in the Bible always is north of Jerusalem. South in the Bible is always south of Jerusalem. And, and west and east are always taking their reference point from the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, I think I proved my point, right? Jerusalem is the geographic center of the earth, biblically, which is why it is very important to understand that as we read these scriptures moving forward. And as we prepared to enter into this part of Revelation, we studied in the book of Revelation again that the the church age, the things that are must end, must pass away before the things that will take place later, which means the rapture has to happen before the tribulation. And again, we'll start talking about that next week. But according to Daniel chapter 9, again, this is one of those guys that you can go and just read chapter 9 and do a commentary. We have one more notion to explore today. And that this one holds a lot of interest for all Christians today, and that is a question that centers around the timing of the end. And according to Daniel 9, Jesus' second coming will be seven years after the signing of a covenant. Daniel tells us that this covenant will be signed between a certain world leader and Israel's leaders to permit Israel to have a temple. And if you study that a little further, you're noticing that those things are happening as we speak and that covenant kicks, up, kicks off the start of a tribulation. Daniel's final seven-year period out of what is called the 77s in the book of Daniel. Again, so very interesting stuff to study. So I encourage you to find that commentary. So that's when it kicks off, the, the final seven of the 77s. And we know, because we found this out the second week, that the church must be removed prior to this time. But the timing of that removal, the timing of that rapture for us, is basically a complete mystery. Not even the son himself, the Bible says, knows the day or the hour of his coming for the church. Only the father knows that, Jesus said. But despite the fact that the church's removal date is unknown, we do know, because of what we studied, that it's closely tied to the start of tribulation. We don't know if it's going to be the rapture and tribulation the next day. We don't know how that happens, but we know that they're closely tied. One has to happen before the other, because according to the outline that we've been going through in Revelation, the end of the church age takes place, and it takes us into the things that will happen later. And if, those, and if there's our signs that the end of the age is upon us, so if you think about it, it would also be an alert to the church that our removal, meaning the rapture, is approaching as well. So you see, there are signs. And as it turns out, the Bible does tell us that there are signs that we should look for that indicate the end of the age. And let me tell you, this is very timely. So here we go. All that to get into Matthew 24. Open up your Bibles. Open up your maps. Follow along. You definitely want to read with me as I go along because we're going to stay in Matthew 24 towards the end. And in Matthew 24, verse 1, again, call the Olivet Discourse, This is what it says. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to these buildings. Key. He says, do you see all of these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, When will this happen? They wanted to know what we wanted to know, right? And what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Now, this is what is happening at this moment. This scene occurs two days before Jesus' trial and ultimate death. Jesus, you see, arrived to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, if you guys remember, riding on a donkey, donkey, and since he's been spending days teaching in that temple court in the Mount of Olives. So I imagine that Jesus at this moment, not only is he teaching, but he's also thinking about the end of his life and what he must endure. Yet his disciples were so amazed at this building, they're kind of oblivious to what was about to happen. So they were sightseeing, kind of like what I would be doing, remarking on the impressive temple building. And rightfully so, let me tell you why they were so focused on that building. Because that was Herod's temple. And it's, it is and was and has been one of the most impressive construction projects ever undertaken in all of history. The massive foundation of stones were so large that even archaeologists today who have found them have trouble conceiving how they were constructed and moved so precisely. At one time, this temple building had 90 feet high of white marble with a golden cornice at the top. And there's this guy, Josephus, that we quote a lot here because he was a Jewish historian. And he said that that was visible from 30 miles away. Imagine how grand this building was. Just incredible. It was magnificent. And that building actually took a very long time to finish. It wasn't even completed until 40 years after Jesus' death only to be destroyed a few years later. So naturally, as you imagine, it's not the disciples' fault. They were were mesmerized. They were fascinated by this building. And Jesus uh, makes this prediction that all this magnificent building, that all of these stones are going to come tumbling down. So naturally, he gets their attention. And Jesus' prediction came true in 70 AD. In fact, there's so many enemies around this little tiny nation today That would love to see that happen again. Again, Josephus, that Jewish historian, even said that a person visiting after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD would never believe that anyone ever inhabited that place where that temple stood, which is interesting because there's still dispute as to where the original temple stood upon the Temple Mount today. But as the disciples point out these buildings, Jesus responds with some very serious words. Jesus says that these massive buildings would be torn down stone by stone, so the disciples now ask a series of questions, and it becomes our outline for the rest of Matthew 24. And in verse 3, the disciples ask three questions. The first one says, when will these things, meaning the temple destruction, happen? The second question, what will be the sign of your coming, Jesus? Jesus. How will we know that you're coming? And then the third question, in the same question, is what will be the signs of the end of the age? Not only you're coming, but what are the signs of the end of the age? And then if you read this same account, you know, you see there's other writers of the Bible. Another one his name is Luke. He writes the same story, and in his account, basically, there's another question that he asks. And that fourth question is, what will be the sign that the temple destruction was about to take place? And what follows in Matthew 24 is Jesus' answer to those questions. But again, in order for us to interpret them properly, we must notice a couple of important details. First is that Jesus adds another question that the disciples didn't even think to ask. The second thing we must notice here is that Jesus answers their questions, but not in the order that they were asked. So he may throw this off. So I'm just going to go off of the first one he answers. Verse 4, this is Jesus' answers. Watch out that no one deceives you, he says. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You know, Jesus is that question that they didn't ask. He's saying, what are not the signs of the end of the age? Jesus, they didn't ask that, but Jesus is telling me, hey, these are not the signs. Someone will come and it's going to deceive you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end, hear the scripture, the end is still to come. So Jesus' first warning is that no one in the church, none of us that believe in Christ, would be misled into believing that Jesus has already returned. It would happen that many will come in Jesus' name claiming that they are Jesus and they will succeed in misleading many. Make sure that that doesn't happen to us. Because when Jesus comes back, we learned two weeks ago that when we get rapture, we're going to be in heaven. And when Jesus is second coming, we're going to be with him. We're going to join him. So if, I, if you're not with Jesus when he comes back, then something, something's right here. Next, Jesus says, don't be worried about wars and rumors of war. Really important one. Because we know that there's been tons of wars. We know that there's rumors of wars in this age, but the the mere presence of war is not a sign of anything, definitely not a sign of the end of times. And rumors that wars will start between, let's say, Iran and Israel or Russia and Israel really is not what Jesus was talking about here. So then Jesus begins to answer their questions. And the first one he answers is, what are the signs of the end of the age? Jesus begins to tell us that the signs will announce that this current age is going to come to an end. And in verse 7, this is what he says. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these, and this is so key for us today, all of these are the beginning of birth pains. First, I think it's so important for us to spend some time understanding birth pains since it will help us to recognize these signs and to put things into perspective. And since I don't know anything about birth pains, so I've enlisted the help of a few moms. I've actually asked a few moms to tell me a little bit about birth pains, including my wife, and this is what they said. First, they said birth pains are painful, which is why they call them pains. They are intensely painful contractions that interrupt normal life for a woman. And not only are they painful, one of them said, but when once labor starts, you can't stop it. It's going to go through. So are the signs of the age. They will be painful experiences for the world. And they will interrupt normal life for all of us in every imaginable way. And once this starts, we won't be able to stop it. Second, we know that birth pains can start very mildly at first, I mean, in fact, some women say that they could be false alert, right? So they're called, I think, Braxton Hicks. And and if meaning that you could probably think you're having false labor and ignore it and miss it altogether, eventually you'll realize you're in labor, but you may miss it at first. And so it will be with the signs of the age. They will start mildly and many might not notice or recognize the significance of them then we know that birth pains will increase in severity as time progresses. You know, as the contractions start getting stronger and stronger, so it will be with the signs of the end, of the ages, because these signs will start to repeat themselves over and over, but when they repeat, they will get stronger and stronger and more severe. Fourth, are you guys bummed out yet? (laughs) Fourth, birth pains increase in frequency. That is that they get closer together, and the closer together the contractions, the closer the woman is to the end. And so it will be with the signs of the end. And the increase in frequency is a sign that the end is approaching. And finally and ultimately, birth pains always lead to new birth and new life. And that's where we're headed. We are headed to go through these signs so that we can have new life. As the pains on the earth increase and as the end approaches, so does Christ's return and the start of a new kingdom. And that is what I'm looking forward to. But let's look for the specific signs. Verse 7, Jesus says that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, this term sounds a lot like a war, right? Right? Yet Jesus said not to look for war. He told us at the beginning, hey, the rumors, don't—that that's not one of the signs of the end of the age. So there's got to be something different about this war. And the answer comes to us from understanding the phrase, this phrase that's talked about here from a historical context. In Jesus' day, this term was used as a euphemism for a certain type of war. The term was called a world war. That's what we call it today or a war involving all the nations and all the kingdoms on earth. I mean, this is a rare and unique type of war, and in fact, it hadn't happened prior to the 20th century, and it's never happened before that. In World War I, 88% of the world's population or the world's uh, countries or nations participated in that war. It It was the first time such a war had ever been fought. And in fact, this was so unique that it was considered the war to end all wars. But they were wrong because then we had World War II. That war was stronger, worse than the earlier, involving 95% of the nations, like birth pains, would predict. You guys are getting this picture Now we know why Jesus specifically ruled out wars in his earlier answer. He didn't want us thinking ordinary or regular war was a unique, it has to be a unique world war that would mark the end. And we've seen two so far, which means we've entered the period of the end because I think all of us know what happens if we have a third one in this day and age. The next sign of the end of the age is verse seven. Still, he says, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, famine, as we know, has been a common thing throughout the earth. So to understand this sign, we must consider it in light of the birth pain comparison. When the end of the age approaches, famines won't be just common. They will become the norm. And they won't just impact some people, but everyone. And that's what Jesus means when he says various places. He means in places that you weren't expecting to see it happening like the United States. So it will be by the increasing severity and frequency that people can see famines as a sign of the end. But remember, in the beginning of birth pains, they will be so mild that we might not even notice them. Although I'm kind of noticing it today. Because today we know that food prices are steadily increasing and supplies are running short. We may think that's temporary, we'll see. And as we move forward towards the end, this sign will only increase. That's when we know it's a sign of the end. And finally, Jesus says something that, you know, just completely bums me out. Look for earthquakes to increase. And since measuring earthquakes is a science, it's easy to track this sign. So a quick Google search will show you that the U.S. Geological Survey, all of that data shows a general rise in earthquake activity worldwide in recent decades. In fact, the average number of high-intensity earthquakes, the average in all of the 1900s, was 110 every single decade. But in the first decade of this century, it was 150. In the second decade of this century, we've already, they recorded 165. That is a 43% increase over the average in the 1900s. So world wars, famines, earthquakes tells us that we're near the end of the age, and they will follow a pattern of birth pains getting worse and worse as time goes by. And then there's another sign that Matthew 24 doesn't talk about, but I, I think it's important that we go back into the prophets and Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 20, it tells us that there's going to be a regathering of Israel. And what that basically means, what he's saying, what Ezekiel is saying is that the people of Israel will be regathered from where they were scattered and they will re enter the land of Israel. Something that is happening slowly today. And they are regathered specifically so that they might be able to endure the tribulation together. And yes, it will be a time of judgment against the people of Israel. And when the, just kind of like when the Lord dealt with the forefathers over in the desert. And as a result of being made to pass under the rod of punishment, as the scripture says, the people of Israel will come back to the old covenant, which is basically the Old Testament law, which is the agreement that allows for this type of penalties and punishment. So once again, we have evidence that the tribulation is intended for Israel. So in preparation for that judgment, they are regathered, the Jews are. Now, keep in mind, remember, we talked about these predictions at the beginning. We all want to know what's going to happen next. Jesus didn't give us a detailed and explained chronological roadmap, roadmap of prophetic events. He gave us a few. However... If we take what Jesus said in the Gospels, which is the the first four books of the the New Testament, if we we take the Apostle Paul and Peter and what they wrote in the letters, the epistles, and when we take what the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation, we do have a little bit of a roadmap that helps us understand what's going to happen next. And I mention these things because... I I grew up knowing these things. I grew up maybe not as, as a young child, but as I started studying a little bit more, I was fascinated with Matthew 24. For some of you, you've grown up in the church and you have known this truth for a long time. For many of you, this is the first time you ever hear about it. And just remember that there was prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and then in the New Testament, Jesus and Peter and Paul and John throughout all the centuries. We have all said the same thing. Every generation has said the same thing. We know that it's coming, and we're getting closer. I mean, tomorrow we're going to be closer, obviously. But in every generation, people are left with a choice, you see, like we have a choice today, to heed and to believe or to reject the warnings. That is the choice that we have this morning. You have a choice right now to place your faith in Jesus who came to die for you on the cross. Will you be ready for him? That is the question that we're going to be asking throughout this whole series. Because in light of this, this is what I encourage you to do, because these messages are not intended to scare you. These messages are intended for us, for me, starting with me, for me to contemplate my relationship with God and to ask the question, am I ready? This is what I encourage you to do, to think about, to contemplate, to meditate on as you read these scriptures. That first, that you would hear them and that you remember them well in such a way that you plant them in your heart that it would make a difference as you walk out of these doors. And understand that all of these portions are scripture like this, they, they ought to be approached with humility, with understanding that it's not about us. And in light of that, that we would pray, that's why we sang all these songs about the Holy Spirit, because we need the Holy Spirit to guide us in understanding what he would have us do. We understand that there's going to be heresies and persecutions that are going to soon weaken and distract the churches even more. There's going to be, there already is, a fierce war of principles, and it's going to not just jolt us, but the entire, all the nations, and the doors to do good are going to start closing. Again, it's not a a fear tactic. It is a fact as we understand the scripture. So what is our plain duty here? What should we do in light of this besides taking these, hear them, taking them seriously and heed the warnings? Well, I think our plain duty is to always be prepared for his return. And in doing so, that we would let us walk by faith and not by sight and to believe in Christ, not only believe in Christ, but to serve Christ wholeheartedly with all of our being in such a way that that becomes the main thing, the only thing, our priority and everything else is second, that we would love Christ, living in such a way that whenever Christ returns, we're going to be ready to meet him. It takes the fear away of what's going to happen tomorrow. And that we would long. There's a scripture in Revelation 22, which we'll get into, but I'm giving you a preview. 22, it says, Lord, come, Jesus, come. That we would long to see his return in our hearts. That we would pray for that. But there's help for us here. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it's one of my favorite verses. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. In light of what we're hearing this morning, we should have this confidence of where we're going and because of that, we can approach his throne. The throne is the cross where Jesus died for your sins That we would approach that throne with confidence so, it says, we may receive mercy and help in our time of need. And all of us need that mercy and all of us need that help as we walk out of these doors, Amen. You see, there's a lot of fear out there. We've been talking about fear. There is so much fear over everything. It's quite amazing fear that we're going to lose our battle of principles, fear that we're going to lose our health, fear that we're going to lose our freedom, fear that we're going to lose our children. Yet, let me tell you what Jesus reminds us of in Matthew 10 28. He says, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, he says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That to me is just, Father, I'm sorry. It, it creates this reverence for God that I can't do anything else but think of that as I think of Revelation and the fear that we may feel out in the world. We shouldn't fear the world and their tactics and everything else. We should fear the one that is trying to get our attention so that we can respond to him and save others with the gospel of Christ. We should turn our hearts to God and God alone. Folks, we are not slaves to fear. We are children. We are sons and daughters of the most high God. We should let our fears be drowned in his perfect love. Will you buy in prayer with me this morning? Every eye closed, every head bowed. I want you to contemplate exactly what the Scripture is bringing to your heart this moment. What is resonating with you? Is the first thing that you thought of was fear? Is the first thing that you thought of is like, God, I'm not, I'm not right with you. I need to get right with you. Is the first thing that thought of is like, I need to know this Christ now. I have this sense of urgency. And if that's you, if you have that sense of urgency and you've never accepted Christ into your life, I want you to just repeat, by the way, we never embarrass anyone. We're never gonna ask you to do anything weird. When I say you just repeat this in your heart, that's all we're gonna ask you to do. And then I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand with every eye closed and every head bowed so that I can see you and pray for you. No other reason. If that's you, if you've never accepted Jesus into your heart, will you just repeat this prayer in your heart silently after me and say, Heavenly Father, I recognize that I have sin. I recognize and understand that you've died for me and rose again to pay for my penalties of sin. I ask that you would come into my heart to be my Lord and personal Savior. And as best as I know how, I will follow you all the days of my life. If you repeated that prayer in your heart with me, will you just boldly just raise your hand? No one's watching except for me. Every eye is closed. Every head is bowed. If you repeated that prayer in your heart, will you raise your hand? I see your hand. Lord bless you. You can put it down. Praise Jesus. Now, for those of you that might be gripped by fear because of all the nonsense that we keep seeing, I want you to be come before that throne of grace symbolically and just picture yourself just symbolically putting everything at the throne of grace. Let's call that throne of grace the cross. I want you to do that with me and I'm going to pray for you and just say Heavenly Father, I am so tired of being gripped by fear. I boldly come before your throne, Father, and I lay everything at your feet and then I want you to tell them right now what those things are. In your heart, in your mind, just say, Jesus, these are the things that I want to lay at your feet. I am afraid of what's happening with our government. I am afraid of getting lost in all of our freedoms. I am afraid of what's going to happen to my children. Just let them know what those fears are and come and lay it at his feet. And there's one more. And if this is you... And you just know that you're not completely right with God. You, you know Christ. You've accepted Christ. But you know that God is drawing you near. And now you recognize that these signs, what's going on out there, is the sign and he's getting your attention so that you can come back to him wholeheartedly and put him first. If that's you, this is what I want you to pray. And say, Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for what I've made it. Father, will you help me return to you? And as best as I know how, I will follow you as my priority wholeheartedly the rest of my days. Father, you know your people. And yet I know you love them. And I know you're for them. And I know you want us to heed the warning in such a way that we will spread your word. Be agents of change. Be agents of love. Be the light of the world, Father. So help us in this room and those listening to my voice online, help us, Father, to do that. We know that you can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we claim that we are no longer slaves to fear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.